Our first reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, and also chapter 9, verses 6. And if you're using the Bibles we provide, we will begin on page 152. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In chapter nine, verses six, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. The word of our Lord. Our second reading is from Luke chapter six, verses 20 to 26, which is on page 862 in the Bibles we provide. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The Gospel of Christ. We return to our study of 1 Corinthians. We come to the end of chapter 1 this morning, and if you're using one of our Bibles, you'll find this on page 952. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. The Apostle Paul is writing, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord, the word of the Lord. It's a little hard to say thanks be to God after any one of these three lessons. Uh, In the first, Moses is addressing the people of Israel at the point of their spiritual pride. They love to say, we among all the peoples of the earth, God has chosen as his own treasured possession. And so on behalf of God, Moses says to them, Do you think he chose you because you're the greatest nation on earth? No, you're the least. You're no account, little group of people. You think he chose you because you're so righteous, so good? Absolutely not. You're a stiff-necked, stubborn people. Thanks be to God. (laughs) And then Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount makes it even more 
poignant. We all kind of prefer Matthew because he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, but Luke just says, blessed are the poor and cursed are the rich. You know, thanks be to God. Okay, <laughs> hide my watch. Um, and now we listen to Paul. Paul is in the midst of his opening salvos in writing to a church that he knew very well because he was the one who had originally planted that church in Corinth. He had discipled up its leaders. He'd spent a lot of time. He'd written a whole number of letters, more than the two that we have in the New Testament, because in those letters he refers to other letters and other things that he'd written. But he's away from them now, and he has heard uh, word from a group that he refers to as Chloe's people, probably uh, members of the household of a woman named Chloe. And they've come and told him, hey, things are really a mess in Corinth. We know you love those people, but it's not good right now. And they've reported that there's quarreling and division. And as we've begun looking over the past few weeks at the opening of the letter, what is obvious is that at the heart of it all, the problem is spiritual pride, a corrosive desire to appear good to the world around them so that they don't have to for a moment ever be despised and rejected even though they and we worship one who in the days of his flesh was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one from whom men hid their faces. And so Paul is wanting to bring them back to earth, get them grounded to say, you cannot be Christians, Christ followers. You cannot know the gospel. You cannot taste and experience the reality of this new life unless you get some things right at the start. And so he's doing this through three moves. As we saw last week in the verses immediately preceding those we read this morning, Paul says, look, the gospel appears foolish to those who consider themselves wise and mighty in the world, first of all, because of the message at its center, what Paul here calls the word of the cross. We won't go back through that, but we looked at that in detail last week. Why was the word of the cross so completely counterintuitive, so objectionable, in fact, so scandalous, and frankly, such bad taste to people in the early world, the, in, in the early days of the church? Until we get that, and if you weren't here last week, somehow consider, I hate to give an ad for my own sermons, but they are online, and that one is central to the gospel and our understanding of it. And if we don't get it, we're in precisely the same trouble as the Corinthians. Now, in the verses that we read, he will turn and say, not only do those mighty and high in the culture around you whom you so much want to please by showing that you're actually philosophically inclined, the word Sophia, 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 wisdom. Philosophy is philo, love, Sophia, love of wisdom. And that's what permeated Greco-Roman society. And they have tried to design the gospel or communicate the gospel in such a way that it's actually a form of philosophical wisdom. And so that's why Paul says, look, the word of the cross is folly to those who are pursuing a worldly understanding of wisdom through philosophical uh, pursuits and dialogues and the attempt rationally to 
figure out how you get free of this broken world, which is what Plato and his followers tried to do. That's folly. Now he says, it's also foolishness because of those of you who believe the gospel. He points his finger right at them. You think you look so good to the world around you, but the fact is, another reason that they consider it sheer and utter foolishness is because they look at you and say, gosh, if they believe it, why would I want it? And that's what we're going to look at today. Then next week, if any of you are around on Labor Day, uh, we're going to look at the opening verses of chapter 2 in which he makes his third move, and there he turns the focus back on himself and Apollos and Cephas, the apostles, the preachers of the word, and says, look, let's be honest, it also appears foolish to the world because of people like me. So those are his three moves. We're in the middle. The gospel appears foolish to the world because of those who believe it. And I hope that you are always asking, so what? What does this have to do with me? Paul's writing to Corinth 2,000 years ago. What does this have to do with me? If you're not asking that, you're just at best collecting knowledge. So let me start. Hopefully, we'll press it in in a number of different ways. But let me just remind you of the evangelical modus operandi whenever we want to try to have a big event to reach the world around. What do we do? We bring in a star. We try to find someone who's well-known and respected for their writing or their thinking or their speaking, someone known for his eloquence, someone known for her athletic ability, someone known for her business success. Bring in a star, draw the crowd, that'll do it. Doesn't the Lord love the rich and successful? Of course he does. Don't powerful people People that we see in the news, don't they need the gospel as well? Of course they do. Isn't a a highly intelligent person whom Christ has drawn to his heart, who's now using his or her gifts to communicate the gospel in a winsome way or to defend the faith in the public square, isn't that a great gift to the church? Yes, of course. Isn't a person who enters public life and rises to a position of power and authority and seeks to use that authority for the good of the kingdom of God, for the good of the people entrusted, isn't that a good thing? Yes, of course it's a good thing. Isn't a person with tremendous wealth who sees himself or sees herself as a steward of what's been given and so tries to use their wealth in a way that really changes the world in a way that pleases the Lord and helps people. Isn't that a great gift? Of course it is. Well, then what is Paul's point? What's my point? Just this. When the rich and the powerful and the mighty believe the gospel, that's not what makes the gospel true. They believe it because it's true. And if none of them believe it, if only a few poor people down in a a poor part of town believe it, it is just as true. And that's where Paul is going with this thing. These Corinthians, like so many of us, are so deeply concerned to be a part of their culture and to mainstream and to to just show everybody, you know, this is really what you all believe. This is really at heart what, what you've always been seeking. And of course, there's one sense in which that's right. But it's on a dangerous line where it can very quickly become desperately wrong and take us at warp speed away from the gospel. So, what does Paul do? 
In these verses that we read, he basically is calling on the Christians at Corinth to consider carefully three things. And I want to ask us to consider those three things this morning. First, he says, and he uses this language in verse 26, he opens this section by saying, consider your calling. Now, when he says that, he doesn't mean what it first sounds like he's saying. He's not saying, consider the nature of your calling or consider uh, what you've been called to do or be. No, no, he, by the words he immediately speaks after that, we know that what he's saying is, consider what you were like, who you were when Christ called you. So he's saying, consider yourselves at the time of your calling. We know that because he immediately follows by saying, not many wise according to human standards, the actual Greek word is there, according to the flesh, which means it, the way that the world looks at it, they wouldn't call many of you guys wise. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Now that's where he starts, verse 26. That's the first consideration he's saying, consider this. Now why those three things? First of all, not many wise. What is Paul saying there? Is he saying, you know, you Corinthians are really a bunch of dummies. You, you haven't done well in school, you can't get, no. Were there really no people of high intelligence in the early church? Well, good heavens, think about the person who's writing. Paul was brilliant and he'd received a first-class education. He had sat, according to the book of Acts, at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the most esteemed rabbinical scholar of his day. That's whom he studied law with. Gamaliel was president of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, which was the Jewish ruling council. He was the grandson of the great Rabbi Hillel. If you've seen at universities, Hillel House, uh, often the, the Jewish community on a campus will be part of Hillel House because he's perhaps the most esteemed rabbinical thinker from the ancient days ever. And that was Gamaliel. That was Paul's mentor. That was Paul's teacher. He had sat at his feet and learned to be a rabbi from Gamaliel. And we read his letters and we follow him around in Acts and we see his brilliance of mind, his capacity to stand before any group in any venue, whether the poor, the broken, whether the merchants, whether the philosophers, whether kings, and to preach with power the things of God. He speaks several times in this letter of his friend Apollos. And Apollos, in the book of Acts, is called a person with, who was an eloquent speaker. In fact, that was probably why some of the people at Corinth were dissing Paul, because they said he's not as eloquent as Apollos. Or you think about Paul's frequent uh, tra traveling companion, according to the book of Acts, the author of the book of Acts, and of the gospel that bears his name, Luke. Luke was a medical doctor. And if you've ever read the Gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts in a good translation, you know that he was one brilliant storyteller. He could sweep you up in the narrative and just move you right through. He was a brilliant person. And we could just go right on through them. Even the fishermen, Peter and John, when they appeared, Acts chapter 4, before the Sanhedrin, probably Gamaliel sitting there in the chief seat, they were called in and threatened and told they weren't to preach in Jesus' name anymore. 
They answered with such boldness and clarity that when they left, the Sanhedrin said, where did these guys get this? They're not educated. And the only thing they could come up with as an answer for themselves was they knew that they'd been with Jesus. So they'd had pretty good mentoring too. And if we had time, we could just go through Matthew, a tax collector, but read his gospel. Mark, probably Peter's gospel, because Mark was with Peter when Peter was an old man, and that's probably where he got the stories that are in Mark. You read the letters, you read the revelation. This body of work has been read and believed by more people on earth than any other, rising in our day to over 2.2 billion people, over a third of the world's population that profess the name of Christ and revere, at least in word, those writings. Now, the gospel is not true because 2.2 billion, if two, two and a half hundred believe, it would be true. But what I'm saying is, when Paul says not many wise, he's talking about something else. The wise in that age were the philosophers, those who sought knowledge through a particular way and sought a particular kind of knowledge and scorned, laughed at the idea that anyone would believe in the resurrection or want the resurrection. They wanted to get free of this physical world. And what Paul is saying is, nobody's going to look at the church and say, hey, if you want to meet a bunch of really sharp philosophers, Go to the church in Corinth. That's a sharp bunch. Uh-uh. Philosophy will not get you there. He is saying, why do you keep going back to Sophia, wisdom? Why do you keep loving Sophia? Why do you want to be known as philosophia, <laughs> philosophers? No. That won't get you there. To the wise of this world, they look at you and say, not wise. Secondly, not powerful. Not many powerful. And now, of course, this is obvious, and particularly if you were here last week, you'll say, yeah, of course. Most ancient religions were designed in order to preserve the status quo and to keep everybody in his or her place. That was the whole design. Uh, my Hindu friends who may be here this morning, please forgive me. Uh, but I just use Hinduism because I spent more time in India than any other place outside the U.S. that I've spent. And it comes to mind. Uh, as a classic example, if you study Hinduism, I'm not speaking a word against the lovely people I know who follow Hinduism, but Hinduism as a religious system was clearly designed in order for the Indo-Aryan light-skinned people who came down through Afghanistan into India and had to find a way to keep the dark-skinned Dravidian people in their place. It was brilliant. It basically says, you stay right in that caste where we place you, and don't you move. Don't you ever raise your eyes and look in my face. Don't you tell me that I can't have any of your women that I want for the night and then throw her back to you. Don't tell me that I can't make you do anything that I tell you to do. Because if you do, if you so much as squeak, 
you may end up worse in the next life. Your only hope is not education, not rising, not working harder. It is doing exactly what you are told to do and keeping right to your place. And then maybe in the next life, you'll come back higher on the chain. It's brilliant. It's horrible. But it's brilliant. And many of the Eastern religions that weren't that clearly oppressive, nonetheless, from you know, Confucianism, more of a philosophy, but that ordered Chinese society. And uh, the amalgam, the strange amalgam in Japan of, of Zen Buddhism and Shintoism, really the Shintoism taking dominance, that with a Zen Buddhism that was supposed to be peaceful, nonetheless enabled the samurai to cut the head off of anybody who dared to raise their eyes and look at them. It was to keep people down. So why would anyone in power ever want the gospel which was designed to challenge those in power. We saw last week that the whole reason that the message of the cross had to be the central message was because it was a disempowering of Roman power. The cross was the supreme symbol of Roman might. The Romans used the cross to terrify people, to terrorize them into obedience to the state. If you dare to cross Rome, this is where you'll end up, on a cross. And you will be tortured to death, publicly. And so when God comes to redeem us and becomes one of us, he goes to the cross. And he conquers it in his death and his victory. And Christians who a few weeks before had been so terrified of the cross that they ran away from their Lord and Master, whom they loved, because they didn't want to end up on the cross, now stood boldly and held up the cross, as Bishop Barron said so eloquently. They held it up as a taunt to Rome and said, is this the best you've got? Because if this is all you've got, you have no more power over us. You can't terrify us anymore. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And you read the writings of some of the extant writings of Roman uh, governors who wrote back to Caesar, what do I do with these people? There's a very famous letter from Pliny to Caesar asking, what do I do with these Christ followers? They won't put the pinch of incense on the altar once a year and say Caesar is Lord. They just won't do it. They're not Criminals, they're not out doing bad stuff. I mean, I don't know what to do with them. I killed a few of them, but it didn't seem to scare anybody. It didn't stop them. They held up the cross and said, the powers of this world can't terrify us anymore because death has been swallowed up in victory. In Christ, we've already died. In Christ, we will be raised. That was the most subversive message to human power and oppression and violence ever made. And it was the message of the Church of Jesus Christ until Constantine, end of the third, beginning of the fourth, or end of the second, beginning of the third century. Constantine marched down from England, had his dream, marched into Rome, said this sign is now something to put on shields to give us victory. And suddenly, everybody wanted to be a Christian because the emperor was favorable toward Christians. 
And we've been in the captivity of the church by powers of this world. And we forget that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message that totally subverts this world's values. And when understood and lived, turns it all upside down. And has to. It has to. Because the powers of this age that feed human pride are demonic. And to save us over and over and over again, all of that has to be challenged. And we dare not let the gospel of Jesus Christ be what we've too often made it in this country. An awful amalgam of our own view of ourselves and just the grossest wickedness. What do I mean by that? Well, let me go to his third thing. He says, not many of noble birth. Now, Paul knew about this because he brags uh, in some of his letters. Uh, he brags in his second letter to, to the Corinthians, chapter 11. He says, let me boast a little. I'm being a fool. I'm going to play a fool. Since you're so proud, they were still struggling with it. Since you're still boasting in yourselves, let me boast a little. And he talks about all that he'd been through and who he was. Uh, one of his more dramatic cases of this was in Philippians chapter 3. So you can see Paul's talking to himself as well. In Philippians chapter 3, he wrote, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Isn't this wonderful? This Paul. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But then he'll go on to say, whatever was to my gain I count as loss for the surpassing glory of knowing Jesus Christ. See, Paul dealt with this in his own life. He had once thought of himself as born to the right tribe, born in the right place, born to the right people, right education, power. I'm the servant of the Sanhedrin. My mentor is the president. I've got it all. Worlds right before me. I have to destroy some Christians, get rid of this sick group of people. He knew what he was writing about. He'd been on both sides of this. I was struck by this. I occasionally suffer a deep spiritual lapse and do genealogical studies. Uh, it comes from my father's side. We were always told, you know, oh, you've got, we can, you can track back to, you know. Uh, I found, you know, there the story was the Southern story. We, we were Southern gentry until the war and then Tragically, we lost our property and never recovered. But I'd read these, these obituaries long about my mid-19th century Confederate ancestors. Talk about godliness. Goodness, this one walked with God, preached with such power. So many came to know Christ. person of such gentleness, such beauty. And I continue and found all these advertisements from one of them who was one of the founders of Davidson College. 
uh, periodically he would run uh, ads offering reward for runaway slaves. That was the South. Great Christian who owned other people. It's And it makes me not look with contempt at him. It makes me look at my own heart and say, what do I just not see? What of this world and its sick, corrosive values have I just drunk in with my mother's milk the way they did in the South back then? What are my spiritual sicknesses that are making me preach the gospel and then live as if oblivious what it's really about and the change that Christ wants to make. So very quickly he then drives it home and the second consideration is why did God do this? Why did he choose those the world considers foolish and weak and ignoble? Well, I have to just make this note because it's so wonderfully said. Not many uh, of noble birth there was a, uh, a wonderful Christian lady in England back in the days of John Wesley and George Whitfield, who was a real patron to them, helped them uh, both through encouragement and through uh, helping some more support them for their travels. And her name was Lady Huntington. And she famously said of this text, I am going to heaven because of the letter M. Thank God that Paul said, did not say, not any of noble birth, but not many of noble birth. I've been saved by an M. And some of us this morning may well want to remember that and say, thank God he didn't say not any, but not many. But why? Why this? Paul tells us, verses 27 through 29, he makes it clear. He says, he chose the foolish of this world in order to shame the wise. He chose the weak of this world in order to shame the strong. He chose things that are nothing in order to shame the things that are. What's he mean? God doesn't hate the wise and the strong, those of noble birth, but until they realize that they are just like everybody else, just as needy, There's no hope for them. They cannot receive the gospel. They cannot glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. They will at most make it their religion, as so many Christians have done. I wonder sometime if most of the church worldwide has simply made Christianity a system of doctrine, their religion, and they go to church, and they do things. When it's not that at all, as we'll see in a minute. So first thing that has to happen is you have to be brought to your senses. You have to be brought to reality. I I don't know if any of you enjoy the old nature writers, but I I was yesterday reading uh, a wonderful essay that I'd read in the past by John Burroughs, the great 19th century naturalist, back when everybody wanted to be a naturalist. And he's writing about how to see and the importance when, in his case, you're out in the field seeing things that other people wouldn't even see, hearing what they won't hear if you would really know your environment. Celebrate the light in nature. He said it's a love that moves you to it. But he uses an interesting illustration that really struck me with regard to this text. 
he said, this is the kind of scene I'm talking about. This, he's writing in the days of Queen Victoria. He said, uh, recently, as you may have read, Queen Victoria went to Paris for some big exhibit, and the new Parisian empress was seated next to her, but the Parisian woman uh, was not born royal. She was just recently royal through marriage. And this journalist said, I watched them as they were seated next to each other. And he said, the French woman glanced behind her to make sure the chair was there. The Queen of England simply sat without looking, knowing that there had always been a chair there. There would always, but she was the queen. Someone would have a chair when her tush got to the right level. He didn't say that, sorry. And I couldn't help thinking, and his observation, Burroughs is saying, that's how we need to see. He's seeing something deep that's telling you something, the difference between one who grew up royal and one who's new, newly royal. And I couldn't help thinking in the light of this text that perhaps one of the best spiritual gifts that ever been, could have been given to Queen Victoria would be for someone just to pull it and <laughs> let her find out that she's just like everybody else. This is what Paul is saying, really, seriously. He's saying, there's no difference in the presence of God. What we value and think is so important doesn't matter before God. What had once mattered ultimately to Paul, the difference between Jew and Gentile, no longer mattered. The difference between slave and free, between rich and poor, even the most basic distinction in humanity between male and female. Paul said, in the presence of God makes no difference. There's only one distinction that matters. Either you are in humanity by nature, in Adam, Romans 5, or by grace, you have died and been raised up and you are now in Christ. And that's where Paul is going in this text to verses 30 and 31. He says, God chose what the world doesn't value out of compassion for the strong and the rich and the mighty and the highborn because until they are brought to their knees, until they are humbled, they cannot know the gospel. And that's just as true for us. If you've grown up with church, if you were catechized, if you have all the answers, you've memorized the scriptures, you could stand up and say more eloquently than I everything about this text, but you don't have a living relationship with Jesus Christ, you are still utterly lost and without hope. It doesn't matter what church you belong to. It doesn't matter what rituals you've been through. Because he says all of this, this humbling of the rich and the mighty of this world was for this, verse 30, that you might be by God's grace in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? You if you know Paul's letters, you know he's going to get to that eventually because for Paul, that was central. You were either in this world still or you were now in Christ Jesus. And salvation for Paul was not reducible to justification or regeneration or any of the other theological concepts that are important, but they all are derived from this one thing. You're either in Christ or not. And if you're in Christ, then his spirit is in you. So first, God has done all of this for what? 
And why is it so good? Why is it so good that God has decided to bring down the wise and the mighty and the highborn? Because only by doing that, only through the message of the cross, does he put us on our knees and in a place where we cry out for salvation and can be united to Christ. When he unites us to Christ, all things are ours. In fact, he'll summarize at the end of chapter 3 by saying that. He'll say, why, why, why are you still pursuing what this world values? When all things are yours, whether life or death or the present or the future, all things are yours, for you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Here he states it by saying, why would you seek earthly wisdom when Christ is your wisdom? He's not saying, go to Christ and suddenly you'll make good grades because you'll have human wisdom. He's contrasting the two. He's saying there's this philosophical wisdom that may have its place in human knowledge, but it will get you nowhere, ultimately. And then there's the very wisdom of God which is given you in Christ Jesus. Who is your righteousness? Do you want to go on trying to be good enough for God to love you, or do you want to get on your knees and confess that you can't do it and be united to Christ so that his righteousness is now yours? Who is your sanctification? Do you want to keep trying to set yourself apart for God's service, for his use, to get it right, to learn enough to... to no. If you're in Christ, he is your sanctification. You're set apart. You're part of his body. Who is your redemption? That's the language of slavery. To set a slave free, you had to redeem that slave by purchasing that slave. And he's saying he's done that for you. Everything that once held you back, the bondage that you could not break in your own strength, ultimately to sin and death, has been broken, has been overcome in the foolishness of the cross, where the instrument of death becomes for us the instrument of life, the final reason that it's so good that the gospel is, light, is what it is, is because in this way, God alone gets the glory. That's his final point. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. As Paul frequently does, he he quotes, but in a way that is a little difficult to chase down. If you read carefully, you know that whenever in the New Testament, the Old Testament's quoted, there's a little letter by it, and you look at the bottom, and it tells you what the text is. Well, here in the final verse, Paul says, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. But you'll look in vain for a little letter to tell you where to go, because Paul adapted Jeremiah 9, where Jeremiah said, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the strong man boast in his, uh, etc. Don't let the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows the living God. And so here he says, look, it is all about this. Life is about this one thing. And only through the cross, in union with Christ, can you ever know it. It's about God's glory. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The skies above proclaim it. That's why he created it. The earth is filled with his glory, and one day will be filled with the knowledge of his glory. Moses cried out, and his people have cried out ever since, show me, I beseech you, your glory. 
And Paul said God answered that prayer in Christ. When we see him, he said, then we with unveiled faces are gazing at God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, and we ourselves are being changed into his likeness. You and I are destined for glory. Paul will say, whether you eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. This is what life is about. And the only way to give God glory is by never boasting in ourselves, never boasting in our wisdom, never boasting in our strength. Never bo- How do you run for president without that? That seems to be the big deal right now, to tell how wonderful you are. Paul says, you can't do that no Christ. You can't. They're incompatible. You either boast in yourself or you say, all glory, all honor, all praise are his. And here at the table, we taste and see what he has done to open the way through the foolishness of the cross to the glory that awaits the children of God.